Welcome to the Reflect On podcast, where we embark on inspiring conversations filled with truth, vulnerability, and, well, anything else that'll help us learn, grow, and live better lives. I'm your host, Kevin P. Murphy. Thank you so much for embarking on this reflection journey with me today. Now let's get right into it. This is part two of a two-part mini-series with Adik Chopra. Adik Chopra is an introspective powerhouse who had the traditional path to success ready for him in his early 20s after graduating school. But instead of taking those traditional routes, Adik changed his career paths, cities, and mindset in ways that cultivated his purest forms of life. Whether it's interaction with formerly incarcerated individuals for assisted re-emergence into our world, inspiring the youth of today in innovative ways through his work with the Knowledge Society, or TKS, or creating the life that he wants for him, his family, and his potential coaching practice, Attic is constantly tactful in how he approaches his life by design. But as he describes, these pursuances are perpetual in nature and can be impossible without the ability to look inward. In this episode, Attic describes his unique experiences on his 10-day silent Vipassana meditation course, including how severe pain, numbness, and failures led to the biggest lessons translatable to his everyday life. As well, Attic reflects on the key differences between psychedelic experiences and intense meditative ones, which leads us to the discussion of how powerful pausing can really be in our busy lives. In the spirit of being as authentic as possible, Attic also reflects on his feelings of self-worth and how to break what's called the trance of unworthiness. Additionally, he discusses how he values his time best and incredible methods to challenge your assumptions with practices like what-if thinking and how perhaps one of the best things we can reflect on is the consequences of our actions, good or bad. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. As always, thank you for spending time with me and the Reflect On podcast and enjoy this episode with Adik Chopra. You mentioned how meditation was a way to subject yourself to the removal of those lenses to clear the fogginess, so to speak. You also mentioned your 10-day meditation retreat and that for me, from afar, you told me about it before you did it. I saw and have yet to talk to you until right now in person about it or even verbally. One question I actually was wondering that I didn't get an answer to in reading what you wrote about it was, how did you manage your expectations going into an experience like that, a 10 day meditation? Can you give us a little background, a little bit on it maybe, but how did you manage your expectations going into it as well? And how were they challenged in the moments? Yeah. Um, I'm flawed like every other human. So in, in a way you're probably not expecting, you know, with the way you, you, you asked the question, I actually struggle. So I, I think in one way I'm really good at having very few expectations. Hard to say how I've trained myself that way. Maybe I've learned that expectation is more harmful and again, going in as an open vessel, but on the flip side, Tim Ferriss talks about how like 80% of the value of a trip you plan is the anticipation. I miss out on that value <laughs> because I, I wonder, you know, how it feels like they're kind of in really related, like cousins of, of expectation and anticipation. So, right. um, yeah, it's pros and cons, but I went in with the only expectation of the word retreat. So a lot of people talk about the 10 day Vipassana meditation course is an intentional word is course now I use because that's how they actually call it 
in society, it's known as a meditation retreat. So I hear the word retreat, I'm expecting something rejuvenating, something maybe relaxing, something at least a little bit somewhat comfortable, but it really was not that. It's a boot camp. Now, I actually think it's more of a boot camp than a retreat. I guess you're literally retreating, but it was a boot camp. So with the word, you know, meditation retreat, I didn't realize how hard or intense it was going to be. There's, there's different commentary around Vipassana and the way it's done. Some people think it's very militant. You're, you're suggested to not move for a full hour, three times a day. And then additionally, there's meditation in between that you're doing where you're kind of allowed to move. But the no moving, of course, you can imagine when your leg is numb after 10 minutes, you, you want to move, but you don't move. And then you're let, you know, you start panicking, at least for me. It's like the first time is like, is my leg going to fall off? Like, yeah. what happens? I don't know what the other side of this is. And that, so you can see this is a practice that connects back to what we're talking about of getting familiar with uncertainty. fear too. Exactly. And getting really basking into that uncertainty. What I've learned through that is, and this is what they teach, is like, there's a crazy slew of reactions psychological, mental reactions that happen in that moment. Let's take the, the, the leg being numb again of like, oh damn, is it actually going to fall off? Like, what if I move a little bit? So you kind of like shift a little bit, you know, you count that as not moving, but you know, you didn't actually get out of the cross-legged pose. And then, well, because you wanted to move, well, why did you move? If you're not mindful of it, it's kind of a reaction to the pain. We react to the pain. It's not graceful all of a sudden my back is stiff. My back is numb now. So I adjust again. I adjust back and, you know, maybe even somewhat out of fear. Now my leg and my back are numb. And so this is actually, if we extrapolate, this is kind of what we do to ourselves constantly in our day-to-day -day life is we get a little bit of fearful. If we're not mindful of with our action, we're basically running 10 feet forward and then 10 feet back. If you're trying to be really swift with something because you just are mindless about it, but then you create a spill or an accident with it, well, now you've doubled the activity. And now this is how it becomes our whole life. You just are taking actions mindlessly and you're cleaning up your own mess. No net positive. No net positive, right? There's no forward progression perhaps or any growth hmm. um, or any insight or wisdom. So it's just being aware of, oh, wow, I like... Mentally, I want to shift. Why do I want to shift? I'm terrified. Now, there can be a visceral reaction. You know, so I started sweating at some point, or I remember this. There was actually felt like, you know, so it's 10 days. This is like day eight or nine. It was like an air-conditioned, very sealed room in like, you know, on the second floor. But it was the summer in kind of the woods, the old growth forest. Yeah, but there was no mosquitoes. And then on day eight, I feel some sort of tickling on my arm. And I'm like, there hasn't been any mosquitoes again, going off of previous data. So there's probably not any mosquitoes. And I just felt the sensation. I'm like, well, it feels like something's poking into my body, right? At this point, so dialed into the body because it's been several dozens of hours of meditation. That's all I've been doing. I can notice something is like poking in, feels like something extracting even, and then pulling out. And I opened my eyes after the one hour meditation where you're not supposed to move. Yeah, I, I got bitten by a mosquito, but I didn't move the whole time. And that was easy for me. The next meditation, I feel the slightest bit of air and I'm freaking out because I think it's a mosquito. How did you address that? 
well, that's it, right? That's that's the practice. Is like I open my eyes, I itch it right away. I'm like, damn it, I moved, right? I couldn't help it because I'm terrified. I'm terrified because of a previous event. But this event is very different than the previous event. It's a whole new event. But I'm attached now to that fear. That narrative's already built. It's built, and it's really hard to undo. And so that comes back to kind of this absolutist type thinking or this static way to see life is like pattern recognition is not bad. But it's can you hold two things at once? Can you hold the understanding of the pattern might be there, but also that the possibility of really something brand new that's never happened. And so, yeah, that was that was that was a struggle. It was very very hard that subsequent meditation sit to not react. But this is what we're doing mentally. This is we're just constantly reacting. You know, you get a bit hungry, you react, and you kind of eat right away. But it's like, well, why are you choosing to eat this thing at this time? You know, and it, how well is it serving you? Or when we're in conversation with a loved one, we often justify it. Well, yeah, of course I was impatient. Like this person said this thing to me, or I was really hurt by it. But in fact, you're belittling yourself, frankly. You have so much more power and agency that you you give yourself credit for. We have so much ability to actually orchestrate our own actions that, or at least we have the perception. We can get into free will or lack thereof, but the sensed lived experiences that we actually are powerless. This person said this thing and I had to react. But in fact, what if you just observed the reaction and didn't react to the reaction? Now you've... You know, again, we were talking about nth order thinking before. If you don't react that way, whoever's listening to this probably experienced it at least once where someone says something terrible and you don't react. And there's this weird residual feeling in the room that that person that said that terrible thing now knows how terrible that was. And either they apologize or at least you know that everyone's acknowledged and internalized that that was messed up what they said all because you took a pause, intentionally or not. And you've broken now the cycle that you used to be part of, of talking back at them and saying something in a harmful or violent way, and then they say something back. You break that cycle when you don't react. That's a very exciting place. Trying to get to that place more, it sounds like almost what you were training in in the boot camp or in the course four. Right, that, that moment of the mosquito the subsequent day, yeah. that's so profound. What do you think out of that experience, a 10-day course, what would you say is, and maybe it's what we've just been talking about and, that, and, and honing of that, but what would you say are the biggest applications that you've actually brought into your everyday life, not almost in a forefront uh, constructural way but almost just unconsciously now doing because you embarked on that course yeah there's probably a lot that I'm not conscious of but I think the main thing that I'm conscious of is the non-reaction like I mentioned there's a difference between knowing everything is impermanent this will change also it's what SN Goenka says the one that has built the Vipassana schools around the world versus an understanding of it. And I think that's, maybe there's a different way to define wisdom. The way I, I'd like to articulate it now is, you know, knowledge is maybe theory, but you add experience, knowledge plus experience now is converted to wisdom. And you go from knowing knowledge to a deep understanding of wisdom. And that just sticks with you when you deeply have internalized that 
really nothing is going to remain the way it is and will disappear at some point. That has profound implications of being able to not, again, not forcefully being present, you know, or dialing into the present moment, but actually just choosing it because you know that this is the only thing that exists. And every present moment, every millisecond is also dying and then rebirthing as well. That's one thing, the non-reaction we got into. And I think the other thing is a big part of the practice was actually dialing into the sensations in the body. That was pretty much it. So like right now I can feel subtle sensations kind of throughout my whole body. And it's a matter of interpretation. I think most people, again, it's a, it's a, it's a conditioning. Most people at the retreat or the, the boot, boot camp meditation course, course, the course. Whatever, right? <laughs> It's, it's, you can, if you're not prepared for it, and Shane Parrish talks about positioning, a lot of people didn't work on themselves perhaps sufficiently to position themselves to receive the benefit of the course to the fullest going into the course. So a lot of people I went in, you get to kind of talk, it's a silent meditation course, so you're not talking for 10 days, but on the very last day, they open it up again so that you're able to transition into normal life. Because uh, it's a bit of a shock. Fair enough. And you start to hear people discuss, and it almost becomes this competition of well, who felt sensations throughout the body the most, and it's a new, new measure of success. It's a new measure of achievement, and fundamentally, it's this mechanism of achievement that has not been shed. That now, even if you go to a meditation course, it's following you. Right? The Stoics say, you know, I forget what it really was, but paraphrasing is like you can travel around the world you know, to go to the jungle, to go to the monastery, to go to the Himalayas. But what you're taking with you, no matter what, what you're packing with you and you is always going to follow you is your mind. So that's what people take into the meditation course with them. You have to shed that in the first place. All that to be said, it's not about feeling sensations. Okay. I'm, I'm achieving something right now, but it actually reduces the gap between me and rest of reality, right? So internal world, external world, the, the, the gap or the, the, those two worlds kind of mesh together as I'm in, I can feel the sensations or it allows me to dial into this moment kind of more fully in a, in a body state instead of like a mental, a cognitive state of, I understand the present moment is disappearing all the time. I understand it's valuable. That's kind of a, a cognitive way to interpret it, but there's this feeling realm sensory wise that now has made it a lot more immersive. It almost sounds like you're congealing the relationship between brain body instead of it being more that lizard brain determined reaction and then the body sort of reacts in either unconscious or conscious ways subsequently. Yeah. And you're trying to just mold that relationship to say, hey, let's coexist. Let's be in more constant communication. Yeah. I understand that. I actually have a quote from your passage here that I was curious about, really curious about, about the, the, the course. <laughs> I almost called it a retreat as well. I'm a witness along for the ride in a psychedelic experience at the mercy of where the psychedelic takes me. In this meditation experience, I was an active participant. Can you share more on that and explain what that means? Yeah, yeah. So I've had an, a, an intentional psychedelic trip with eye shade, headphones, 
specific album playing. Um, we don't have to get into that, but you know, this is very intentional. It's uh, kind of honoring and, and respecting how powerful this kind of medicine can be, or it can be a medicine if you treat it that way. Obviously, any medicine can start being abused, but that's not the point. I had a, a profound experience, kind of, it was feminine love energy, you know, so with my wife being able to kind of feel both of our love for each other kind of fuse into one literal entity, which was the message for me to realize, okay, I think you're ready to be a father, Atik, which then actually then initiated us trying to conceive and, and luckily that happened, but then that transformed to, you know, again, a maternal type of love, love for my mother. That was cool. That was very uh, profound and had positive implications that progressed beyond that trip. But I was just along for the ride. I didn't really have a say into it actively, right, as to what's going to happen and what I'm going to receive. What happened at the meditation course was a very similar feeling, particularly revolving around my mother. This was day five, and emotions just overtook me in a very similar, very similar way. The feeling was uncanny really how similar they were but the difference this time was that i actually was able to dig or probe a little bit and it's like well i got i got to evolve the discourse to the point of like what can i do about this you know i felt a deep indebtedness to my mother in a very in the best way that can be interpreted really feeling for the first time intrinsically motivated to take care of her and help her and, and be there for her instead of feeling like I have to be. That didn't happen during the meditation course, uh, the, the psychedelic trip, because this time around with meditating, obviously maybe altered state, but still kind of sober, I was able to then dial into like, what do I do with this? And it turned into, oh, geez, I've been hearing for the last five years, my mom wants to go for a trip, you know, for a week with my mom, with my sister and my wife and myself, our family. But whenever I have free time, obviously I'm, I'm just going to, either, you know, just with my wife or going for a meditation course instead, for example. And those are fine. But for the first time, I actually listened to those words and it just echoed. I remember it just hit me. It was like, oh, geez, like she wants to go for a trip with you. And, and, and this, this health is only receding that she has why have you been putting this off? Like she actually just wants to go for a trip and it just clicked. It's like, of course we're going to go for a trip now. And so about a month later, we went for that trip that otherwise didn't happen for five years. So it felt like a very active process. It felt like the integration between that realization or that feeling to then my day-to-day -day life. I think because I was not in a, a dramatically altered state, it was, it's now more uh, part of my being when I when I have interactions with my mom, it feels like that's still there versus kind of two worlds, perhaps, you know? Wow. Yeah. And it sounds like because you actually eased into the state as well, rather than just being basically thrown into it and yeah. having a lack of agency was also part of the matter, the easing in, the easing out, the and, 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 and re-entrance or re-emergence into re-emergence into reality so to speak as well yeah on it. sorry you were saying well the other example is like it kept emerging like it, it, it's it persisted of like to a certain degree i was still long for the ride but it persisted and it's like started going into other family members that i don't have a maybe a necessarily great relationship with i was able to feel 
genuine unconditional love for them as well. So I think I was able to take it a bit further because I was an active participant or felt like that. Amazing. So a couple final questions. Yeah. One, one I'm going to actually do, I'm actually going to do this first. So I, I got this up. I'm going to show it to you here momentarily. This is a photo of you and I. And I want you to look at it. Okay. See if you yeah. remember it. Oh yeah, this is a classic. It's a photo of you and I where we're wearing the exact same outfit. Yeah. The exact same American Eagle pants. Yeah. You still had the same amount of facial hair back then. <laughs> I did not. Yeah. But we, we basically almost had the same shoes. We had a white shirt, these khaki pants, and almost the same white shoes. Yeah. That is a moment that, well, profound for me, especially when I was coming back into this conversation, Attic, in regards to how your, how strengthened our relationship is. And I say strength not in the conditional sense, but when I'm, we picked up the phone and talked to each other, what was that, two years ago? Yeah. If that? Yeah. It's as if we were the kind of friendship that we had where we had never left, like never left each other's side. Yeah. And to have relationships like that where you can go so long to me and then come back into them and quote unquote never skip a beat, that is where I've distilled the fact that it's not about family versus friends or how you classify someone. It's just more how you interact with them, who you want to surround yourself with and who, whose character you admire. Yeah. And and you're one of those people for me. So thank you like very much from the Thanks. bottom of my heart for that. And I want you to look at that photo curiously one more time. Okay. And look at yourself. Yeah. What would you tell this addict if you could talk to him today? Ah, man. Um, don't sweat the small stuff. It's probably the same thing I... Uh, <laughs> my eight-year-old self would tell me right now, actually. Ironically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Easier said than done. But it is a challenge to... Going back to the kind of the daily practice, sometimes it feels very meticulous, you know, and to dial into how every small thing is affecting me. It then, therefore, gives a lot of importance to the small things. I think the small things are also... They, they compound to be extremely valuable. I know we were talking about like a walk to the grocery store and being rushed to walk to the grocery store with a lack of time. A lack of time is a zero multiplier. Then that walk to the grocery store is basically negated because it's non-existent because I'm not even mentally there for it because I'm, I'm rushed. I'm thinking about the next step already. But I think it's more uh, the small things that I think are a big deal of... Uh, how, how am I, the small little decision or thing I have to deliver in my job, for example, that that's going to happen next month too. Mm -hmm. And then that same concern is going to happen. But what if, and this is how I do a lot of my thing, is like, what if thinking? And really, like, genuinely asking the question, not a hypothetical, but really challenge. I think that's a great way to challenge assumptions. It's like, what if I could still enjoy the small things in terms of their benefit and how meaningful small things like this conversation 
can affect my life for a long term, but I don't sweat the small stuff as in like the small transactional things that I think are, are really rooted in insecurity, just full of insecurity. Am I doing my job well enough? Am I, am I competent enough? Do I you know, fit the group that I'm uh, working with full of very excellent people? These kinds of things, it's, uh, what I've realized is it doesn't go away. Is that you can change the job, you can change the external environment, you can even change work on yourself and make yourself more competent. But the mechanism is the same. The standards are changing, but it's all relative. If the mechanism is still there, it's still the same game. So, yeah, don't sweat the small stuff because it's taken away a lot from my life when I was younger. I think I, I don't regret anything. I'm really happy with the way my life has turned out thus far, but just unnecessary. A lot of unnecessary turmoil and waste and therefore harm, not just on myself, but on others. You know, when you hold anger in yourself, maybe you can relate. It obviously affects, unfortunately, those that are closest to you in the, weird, in the weirdest, most unfortunate way. So it's like, what am I angry about? That I, you know, didn't perform at a 90% level and I performed at 80% level in this one small deliverable for the month of November. And that's the reason why I yelled at my wife or even I yelled at a cashier, another human. It just doesn't, that, that math doesn't make sense to me. My biggest Achilles heel though related to that is taking things for granted. I don't know how, how you've handled that, but I really struggle to... I think that's part of the no expectation though and the lack of anticipation and stuff. It's a double-edged sword, I feel, and I don't know that's the lifelong journey is well, one that's of those where, Yeah, and that's where it tailors into the absolution-based thinking, right, as well, and everything we've already talked about. So that, what you just mentioned, the don't sweat the small stuff, that can be your first of three, if you'd like. But this question is called the wisdom bites, okay, okay or wisdom bites. So hypothetical question, imagine you're on this whiteboard right here is all of the knowledge, wisdom, accumulation you've had in your life, which is incredibly hard to actually digest. Some would say impossible, but just imagine for a moment it was. Now imagine it was all gone. Nothing, yeah. poof. Yeah. But you could only live by two or three pieces of wisdom for the rest of your life. Yeah. What would those be, your wisdom bites? Oh boy. I think part of what, what made me, uh, always makes me worried on hopping on a podcast is I actually need a mirror like you to, to bring things out of me. I think independently, I, I, I'm very blank slate, so it's very hard to kind of create out of nothing. One thing comes to mind, I don't know if I can give you more than that, I'll, I'll, I'll rely on you to dig deeper. We'll start with, I think, um, where we actually started the conversation around trust. Is, uh, and I think that comes, I think, I think, you know, hopefully we're noticing like an intertwined nature of, of everything that I'm saying. Maybe that shows how one dimensional I am or it shows how beautifully connected things are. But to not sweat the small stuff, I think also comes down to a, a trust. And I think to trust in the uncertain is really hard when we've had negative experiences. It's easier said than done, you know, it's like, okay, well, how am I just going to trust that things are going to work out when terrible things have happened as well? And I want to not feel those terrible things. But what if, and I think this is part of the mental baggage I said, is like, what if 
we actually spend a lot of our time revisiting all the baggage, all the negative things that have happened, and we kind of rewrite every one of those stories a little bit, or at least add to them and see more of a holistic view on each of these adverse effects or events that have, have affected us, then I think it makes us more open to trusting. But the wisdom I would, I would give is probably the sooner you're able to trust the world and yourself wholly is the, the sooner the world is going to start working you know, for you instead of against you. Because the world is, let's say, the world, what I mean here is reality. Reality always adds up. Reality doesn't lie. I think the biggest mistake I've made is when I fight reality. It's like banging your head against a wall or trying to run through the wall. You, you should just embrace the reality that it's a wall. Once you embrace the reality that it's a wall, you're calm, you're curious. You just turn your head 90 degrees, you realize there's a door and now life becomes effortless. The door was there all along. So how do you how do we enter that state where we don't feel threatened we don't feel fight or flight because we realize that there's really no there's no need to enter enter that state what has happened perhaps traumatically has happened has developed to make you the person that you you are in certain ways you know and has taught you a lot and you're still here you're still alive so what happens if you're even more receptive to letting life unfold based on what feels right for you. And for me, thus far, that's what's gotten me in the right places for myself, is, is what intuitively feels the correct way to, to proceed in that moment. It's really, um, I think I'm a really logical reason. You have a lot of reason, but it's how, you know, I've been very fortunate to marry the reason with intuition and that's kind of what this nature of a whole body yes you know diana chapman talks about it. i don't know if you've heard of it it's like you can have your brain your heart and kind of your gut if all kind of three are a check mark it's kind of like the hell yes by jerry colonna but if something feels fully yes logically intuitively and, and emotionally then you're good to go but if one of those is off, you want to maybe examine what's happening. And I think when you make decisions that are whole body, yes, and that obviously requires a level of tapping into yourself, like we've talked about kind of underlying this whole conversation, then you can make amazing decisions and end up in the right place. Yeah, it really leans back to that, the irony and that paradox you mentioned of what's the opportunity cost of just going along life in the sense of being victim to the fear so being victim to the survival instinct, being victim to the fight or flight mechanisms that we have that are so ingrained with us that we didn't even know when they were being ingrained or they were already a part of our biological predisposition, right? Yeah. And how to how to go against that and create friction, but almost in a proactive way. Yeah. What lies on the other side of that? Three sort of quick, rapid questions you could say to end things off at it. First of all, just want to say before I do that, thank you again. I mean that not just because there's a recorder in front of us, but thank you for being who you are. You have been an unbelievable mentor to me from afar and in real life. And it's funny because even looking back on that photo, the strength of our friendship wasn't like it was less back then or it was different. I always saw you in the dynamic of that was in high school. That was in grade 11 or 12 where we always just seemed like those people that could have 
different authentic conversations like that, even though we weren't, even though we weren't cognitively developed the same way, right? (laughs) We didn't have the life experience. All we cared about was who's having sex and, you know, how are we getting drunk this weekend? What, what are we stealing from our parents' cabinets or whatnot? But just thank you for the strength in our friendship. I really mean that. really do. Likewise. Final question is called the three hours. So it can be quick, rack of succession if you'd like, but I really want you to think about this. The three reflection questions. Number one, what is the thing that you've been reflecting on the most recently? Uh, it's, it's a constant refinement process to keep, keep redefining ourselves. I think I had, like we were talking about earlier, I had I think a need to prove to myself that I'm capable in terms of uh, maybe in a career dimension. So I had this ambition a couple of years ago, which got me into the role that I'm in right now. But we change, and now I'm soon to be a father if everything keeps working out the way it is with my wife's pregnancy. And I'm, I'm, re- I'm I feel that I'm entering a different mode of who I am, not forcefully, but. What I've reflected on a lot is how do I create time? Not having time as a zero multiplier, that's at least true for me. Maybe it's not true for everyone. And so there's a stat of like time perception that we half of our life is over when we're 25 because of the way we perceive time. And I think that is a function of when we become quote unquote busy because we become quote unquote you know adult life mode. And well, I want to rebel against that because I think there's different options beyond that if we get if we get creative. So how do I actually extend my lifespan? Not in this Jeff Bezos, Elon, you know, Elon Musk doesn't do it, but this kind of billionaire club, Larry Page from, from Google of trying to live forever, but uh, the most organic way of just increasing my time perception by being ultra present. I need more time. To be happy. I think we're talking about reliance. I think I rely on being able to take my time. I'm a very slow person. So I've adjusted my, my future career according to that so I can create more time. But I think the struggle in these decisions that I've been making around working less, creating more time is a, is an unworthiness, so I'm being honest with you. Because I was intentionally unemployed for two months a couple of years ago during the pandemic, moved to a new city, didn't have friends because I was too new to the city. And there was a sense of unworthiness or a real difficulty to be happy and love myself and be confident with the way I was if I was not being productive to society. Particularly, maybe this has an effect that when my wife is a physician and so, you know, conventional way she might be progressing really well or doing checking off certain boxes productively when i'm not it's not that she's a woman that doesn't have to do with it she could be a man and i still be in a relationship with her it's my own insecurity i could also be a woman and i think that still that insecurity would still progress so it's it's the mechanism we go back to the mechanism what i've really been reflecting on is what if i examine this mechanism of unworthiness or what Tara Brock calls uh, the trance of unworthiness. If I can get out of that trance that I'm unworthy of love, 
to myself that I'm less of a worthwhile, valuable human if I'm working less and spending more time with my child or just taking my time more with my life and getting just the same amount done. If I can snap out of that, now I have less insecurity. Now I can be more confident, eased into my own skin, comfortable in my own skin, therefore more loving to my partner, more loving to my kid, instead of having these subconscious insecurities then then fester into doubt and then perhaps violence, you know, and at least verbal violence towards the kid, you know? And now, okay, well, generational trauma is progressing and what am I really accomplishing now with my life? How can I be that beacon that seems to, that you were describing that maybe I am for you? That is my particular measure of success, but it's really hard to undo that, that trance of unworthiness. Well, it's a good thing that you're reflecting on the most. That's yeah. incredible. Reflection number two, R2. What are you not reflecting on enough? <laughs> yeah, I think it comes back to, to uh, how I take things for granted. <laughs> I think uh, the place I'm at, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, I mean, it's inevitable. I'm not just, I'm sure it's guaranteed someone's going to pass away at some point real soon in my life, whether it's my grandpa or it's my mom or it's my sister, someone's going to pass. Maybe, maybe it's my wife. Something's going to happen and I think it's going to snap me out of that. But I've been fortunate that, or maybe it's a matter of perspective that things are just going, you know, I feel very happy-go-lucky, but I think it's really hard for me to dial into how great I really do have it. So... I might be present, but I think the appreciation for how good I really do have it is really hard for me to do. And the reason I'm not doing it, reflecting more on that, even though I feel like I, it would, I would benefit from it, is because I just don't really know how. So instead of forcing it, I've done the gratitude journaling, I've done the gratitude practices, and I think it feels too um, contrived or synthetic. So, hey, I don't have to have it all right now. And I'm, I'm open to it and curious and very receptive to what for that to unfold, but I'm I'm at a I'm at a loss right now, lost for words, a loss for understanding how to bridge that gap. You can't know it all, that's fair. Final reflection question, R3. What do you think is one thing that we could all collectively reflect on more as a society to keep us moving forward? <sighs> kind of infatuated with like this idea of a ripple effect or the butterfly effect, I guess. And, or in less sexy terms, the consequences of our actions. It's like, again, kind of coming back to nth order thinking. I just think a lot of decisions are short-sighted. Forget about what corporations are doing. Of course, we can go on and talk about how a lot of those decisions are, are driven by profit and the, mechani- the, the, the capitalist setup is kind of short-term gain. But even on an individual level, if I'm just thinking about even what jacket to buy. I'm gonna spend a little bit more, I'm gonna have to replace it less. That same jacket I can now use season round. It's like, okay, that's the one, that's the first order of thinking. The next order of thinking is like, what happens when I have all that extra time, right? Now I don't have to decide what jacket to wear. Now I don't have to spend extra money to shop even for another jacket, let alone what happens to replace those additional jackets. 
I don't have to think about what to wear, you know, if I have two t-shirts. With all that extra time, then what do I, what happens now when I have that extra time? I can perhaps be more patient, I can be more loving, but I think it's important then to not fill up that time. Again, so it's like there's a lot of things happening. I think I used to jump really fast to fill up that time because it was really uncomfortable to just not be productive or not escape. But after some time, it's like, how can you create the systems around you such that it feels easy? Or what would this look like if it were easy is what Tim Ferriss says. So if I don't have a TV, which I don't, it's kind of easy to not watch Netflix. And then eventually it, on Netflix becomes uninteresting. Similarly as Instagram, then it, you realize, oh, this feels gross. You know, it's same of getting junk off, off of junk food. It's like, yeah, it feels really hard at the beginning if you're used to it, but then you really notice, again, you become sensitive, like an instrument in terms of sensitive. You get, become really obviously attuned to, holy crap, I feel like shit when I eat that full bag of Cheetos. It's like, cool, now you're even more repulsed, you know? And I think that's what it was for alcohol is, we can again, coming back full circle, what is versus what should be. Krishnamurti taught me that, an old Indian sage, He's, he's dead now, written great books, but he talks a lot about what is versus what should be. What is his reality? What should be is our own insecurities, our own projections, our own conditioning from society. And if we right away, yeah, it can be disguised as a, as a positive thing. What is, is I'm an alcoholic. What should be is that I shouldn't be alcoholic. Well, now we've created a gap, a conflict between what I am and what I should be. I'm in a conflict now. And that conflict paradoxically creates more of a dependency on that substance that was alleviating you of negative feelings short term. What if you didn't do that? What if you accepted yourself? What if you accepted reality wholly for exactly the way it was and you removed all those lenses and you saw it exactly? I'm an alcoholic. You got curious. Why am I an alcoholic? Now, before you know it, the solution starts arising before you. It's like, interesting, I'm an alcoholic, possibly because of the setting. Maybe it's simple that you work in tech and the, every social gathering is around alcohol because it's always after work and it's in the evenings. It's like, cool, what if I just started hanging out in the mornings? What are the implications? Again, nth order thinking. Well, then I'm going to sleep early, maybe. Or what am I going to do in the evening now? I'm not staying up till 11 p.m. My evening's over. What if you just slept early? Now the mornings are more feasible. What are the positive implications if you wake up and your circadian rhythm is adjusted, right? And all of a sudden before your, your life has changed. So I think that kind of, I don't know what you'd call that other than, right, kind of consequences of your actions, but like actually doing it. Like that just, that whole thought process for the last thought five minutes, I think if I did that more, if all of us did that a little bit more, it would make us a lot more conscientious. We would avoid a lot of turmoil. And I think we would double down on the things that are really meaningful to us and that add a lot of value to others as well. And then it's just a prosperous situation for everyone. So why not? It's incredible. All right, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for spending time with me on the Reflect On podcast today. If you found this episode enjoyable or inspiring, please share it with those who it may help and leave a positive review so that we can grow together. Until next time, Reflect onward and keep moving forward.